Hey, folks, my friends over at Night Food asked me to review their ice cream, so I did. Tried some midnight chocolate, some of the best ice cream I've ever had. And guess what? I didn't know this. Now you will. The wrong snacks before bed can mess with your sleep. Sleep and nutrition experts formulated Night Food to be delicious and sleep-friendly. That means less fat, less sugar, and less calories, plus certain minerals, digestive enzymes, and amino acids that can make it a better choice before bed. Night food, the best ice cream there is. What is happening, guys? Welcome to another edition of the Monday Morning Blues. I'm your host, Christian Hansen. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to check out our website as well, www.themondaymorningblues.com. There you're going to find out the next four weeks' guest on our show, information on all of them, and much, much more. So be sure to stay tuned, stay updated, subscribe, and keep the blues alive. Alive and well. What is happening, guys? Uh, what a week. What a weekend. I mean, damn. Uh, this just been wild. I'm starting to finally lose lose my mind. I didn't think it happened in the middle of a pandemic. You know your life isn't really that, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know you're not as involved or as out and about and, uh, you know, sociable when a pandemic doesn't affect you. Well, now it's starting to affect me. I'm in month, I think, four or five of no concerts. Now, I know that's not an issue. That shouldn't be an issue. There's so much more to worry about in life than not seeing a concert, but... For me, someone who's ADHD as heck, um, you know, I'm, I'm hands on. I'm, I'm all about a lot of stuff going on. I'm, I, it's, it's important to me. And that's my part time job. I don't SD entertainment as a photographer and I work in the box office. Um, but that, that's my, that's my outlet. That's my, uh, that's my zone. That's my fun. And it's been four or five months with none of it. It sucks. Okay. Um, I, I don't work out. That's an option or, I mean, that's my, that's my choice. I'm, I can't complain about it if I'm not acting on it, but, uh, I don't know. I just don't want to, um, but I, I losing my mind staying inside. I'm wearing a mask. Um, you know, I'm listening. Um, it's, it's just tough, man. It's just so, so tough. I've been golfing a lot. Um, I mean, that's all I really can do. Um, it's, it's just been crazy. I hope everyone's doing good. Um, hope everyone out there listening is, is hanging in there. We got to do it, man. Just, just wear the masks. Come on. It's, it's not that hard. Um, I, uh, I'm really worried though. Um, it's just, you know, for, for the people who, who are like me, who's got this social anxiety issues, uh, this is a very trying, trying period, certainly. Um, we're seeing people, you know, you know, not be strong enough, you know, to, to, 
to fight the fight and get through it. And, you know, it's horrible to hear these stories. I, I heard a story about this father who was talking about how they had to, you know, lay their, lay their kid to rest because, you know, his depression w- was through the roof because, you know, this, this virus and it's just a horrible, horrible time in, in our history. And, um, I really wish there was leadership that, that, uh, that did their job. That's all I'll say about that. Just crazy. Um, and then I have, uh, you know, a mentor of mine, Mark Marin. I, I can't even imagine what he's going through. Uh, Lynn Shelton is, uh, his partner passed away. It almost seems like what well, back in May now, I think two months ago, a little over two months ago. I was worried about that. Um, knowing that, you know, Mark has struggled in life with, uh, drug addiction, drinking, smoking. And, you know, I check in with him and he is, you know, you, you even hear it on his show. He is, he's fine. He's not, he's not, uh, you know, folding. He's fighting the fight. I love that. I love those stories. And that's what I was worried about when Lynn passed away. I was like, oh no, man. I, I just don't know how much time he has left, but he's fighting the fight. Um, he's funny. He, he just, he's, he's doing well. So, um, there are, there are, there are some things happening that are positive that, you know, that are making me feel good, helping me get through this. It's just all messed up. Just crazy. Um, anyways, I talked to Joey Stuckey today. Um, he's just absolutely remarkable. I mean, here I am over here talking about not seeing a show and, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, it's been four and a half months, five months without shooting a concert, yada, yada, yada. You know, I'm, I'm making a big, you know, thing of it. Yet we have the wonderful Joey Stuckey over here who's living life as a blind musician. Now, my statement of, God, life sucks. I haven't seen a show in four months or five months. Basically just gets thrown out the door. Joey's an award-winning blind guitarist, songwriter, singer, composer, producer, radio and television personality, music columnist, educator, and sound engineer. Wow. Just incredible. I talked to uh, Joey for, holy cow, great long time. Just over an hour and 10 minutes. It was just very, very, very fun. He's, he's inspirational, motivational, and his positivity on the situation, um, that he has no control over in life is just great. And you're going to listen to the interview right now. So hope everyone had a great weekend. Thanks for listening to me. As always, here is my interview with Joey Stuckey. Enjoy. Um, first and foremost, Joey, thank you so much for, uh, for giving me the time today to, to speak to you. It's, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm excited as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, no problem. Anytime. Um, the, the, the similar message that has been, uh, you know, kind of, I've been beating it like a dead horse as of late, but it's something unavoidable is that of the pandemic. Over the past four or five months as a musician, what has this pandemic done? To you, um, as far as, you know, I mean, this is a, this is a, this is what you do. And now it just yeah. stripped from you. I mean, how have you been yeah. able to, to deal with this? 
It has been, there's no doubt that it's been very devastating, uh, for a, a lot of things. I mean, you know, as a blind person, um, I, you know, experience the world through sound and through touch. I, I can't see or smell. Right. And that's the, as part of the, the brain tumor I had, uh, you know, took those things. So, um, you know, not being able to walk up and, and hug people and, and touch people and, and, and just be out and it's about tough. has been challenging mm. uh, for me. There's, there's no looking out the window or, <laughs> you yeah, know, saying, damn. um, so that's been, that's been challenging. And of course, um, being in the music business, uh, I own a recording studio and, and make the majority of my living as, as a producer. Yes. And then the other part is as a performer. So, uh, the performances have certainly been, you know, off bounds. And then again, in the studio, you're in a confined space. You're in a place where you really can't wear a mask if you want to sing. Right. Uh, and record that or if you play a horn or, you know, a saxophone or a trumpet or whatever, you know, um, so, the studio has been kind of shut down. I'm just starting to reopen very slowly oh, and very nice. carefully because, uh, as a brain tumor survivor, I have a lot of health challenges yeah, um, no that, that, uh, that I, I have to be, I'm at, at a, a much higher risk of not surviving COVID. Right. So I have to be uber paranoid. So yeah, from a revenue stream point of view, um, it's been really tough. Um, from, uh, interacting with society, it's been really tough because I'm not getting any of the, visual stimulus if we, you know some people uh can can do facetime or right. zoom or whatever and at least see their loved ones but i don't i don't have that uh again for me it's all about touch so it has been really hard but um i will say that uh, my wife and i have used this time to get on a good diet i've lost 55 pounds holy cow uh, man that's <laughs> incredible so yeah, I'm really happy about that. And, and cause the, the thing about being in the entertainment business is, um, you, you're running all the time from hither and yon and you, you don't really have time to, to do the things or, or you don't think you have the time. Right. You do actually have the time, but you don't feel like or think you have the time to do uh, healthy eating and stuff like that because that does take effort and time. Right. So, you know, uh, we've, we've used this time to get into a good place. Uh, for that, and we're going to be able to maintain that even while we're touring and while we're, you know, uh, when when all that comes back. I have been looking a lot at, uh, you know, different people, Billboard magazine and different folks talking about the live music industry and when they think you'll be back. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, mid-2021. Some people mm. are saying early 2022. Sucks. Which, honestly, you know, even if we were to get things under control, and even if people were to, to socially distance and wear masks, do all the precautions, you know, it's, it's, it's nerve wracking. It, it makes you feel nervous to, to be out in public. I had to go to a doctor's appointment the other day and, you know, I haven't seen more than, you know, three or four people at a time for months. And there was like, I don't know, 50, 60 people walking around the hospital and stuff like that. And, and to be honest, it was a little freaky. It was a little, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not agoraphobic or anything like that, but it was, it was a little much. I was like, Oh my God, get away. It's like, <laughs> wow, know? there's people. They exist. Yeah. It, it was weird. It was weird. So I think it's going to take us time to, to not only get things under control, but also to feel comfortable once again doing what we used to do. So it has been tough, but you know, I've, I've been, I've been using the time to write some, uh, I've been using the time to, to get more healthy. So I've been trying to do 
all the things that I can to make the time, you know, not just a waste and, and to, and to be, you know, to, to be something uh, other than, and one of the things I've been doing too is releasing music that I've had kind of in the can that I, that I like found a home. Yeah. Like, like I, like I hadn't had a home for it. You know, it wasn't, it, I didn't put it on an album or I'd have something in the can or something maybe I'd right. co-written with a friend that uh, hadn't been released yet. So we've been, we've been releasing some music, uh, just little singles, no, no albums, but releasing some new music and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it hasn't been the greatest and, uh, uh, experience in my life, but I try to, uh, kind of like the blues, I try to use every situation I'm given to make things better. And I think when you talk about blues music, you know, it's, it's a sense of catharsis. It's a sense of, of recognizing, uh, things are, are not what you want and hoping that maybe tomorrow they'll be better. Right. But I, I like the, I, I'm a, I'm a very positive person generally, but I like the idea that, you know, uh, it's kind of like baseball. Uh, every day is a new game. So you can lose today and win tomorrow. Right. And, and I like the idea of, of, of blues music where we recognize the things we don't like and we, and we put voice to that and say, I'm not happy right this moment. I'm not, these are not things that I want. And, and I think that's perfectly reasonable. I don't, if you were happy all the time, there's some concern. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no kidding. And I think at that time you, you have those people out there, but it, it's more of like a, a shield that they're putting up and they're lying to yeah. themselves. And it's sad. And everyone does that. I mean, to be a fool to sure. not say you have never done it, but, um, yeah. And you know, for me is I, I'm fortunate enough to, I, I have a full-time job and I'm working throughout the pandemic. It's deemed essential. I don't know how, but I'm happy it is. Um, but the part-time job is the fun job for me. I mean, I'm, I do concert photography and I mean, to not, I mean, there's more to worry about and there's more to be, you know, concerned about than not, shooting a show in five months sure. but at the same time it's like that like takes that whole part of your that life like that that section of your life that is just you know thriving and then is fun that you look forward to each day is gone it's like it's it's testing people on a different level which is why i did the podcast was because of the fact that you know these people that really provide me joy through their music they're not doing anything i know that for a fact yeah. how could i you know liven this up and you know get them involved through a time like this and boom so i uh i did it and it's been it's been uh it's been fun certainly and i've i've met a lot of people and like like you i mean it's just it's just a absolutely in incredible opportunity that i've uh, embarked on so it's just been wild now for you what was it that you, that you came to these senses of wanting to be involved with the audio side of things in, in music. Obviously, um, you know, certainly losing your vision early, early in life limits some things, but for you to push through and do it is beyond inspirational. What was it, um, like what, what pulled you in? Well, you know, it's interesting. The, my parents always made music a big part of our lives. Mm. And, uh, my dad loved country. My mom Love loved gospel. And, yeah. and, and, you know, we, you know, my dad played a little guitar and my mom sang in the choir, that kind of thing. Oh, nice. Um, so, and, and my mom, you know, raised me, they raised me very eclectically. My mom played a lot of classical, uh, uh, you know, she had the idea. And this is before there, this is, you know, back in the early, you know, seventies, right. before there were all the books about it. But she had the idea of playing, you know, music to the baby in, 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 in the womb and all this stuff. So I, I've been raised with music as a source of comfort, as a source of celebration, as a source of solace. And I, I really always loved it. And, um, but the first, you know, 
12, 13, 14 years of my life were really focused on survival after the brain mm. tumor. There was a lot of illness and a lot of things I had to deal with with that. So I really just focused on, you know, uh, you know, going to school and, right. and just getting, getting through that, that, uh, that thing. But then when I was 13 years old, I got sick with pneumonia. It was really, really bad. And I had to stay home, uh, pretty much shut up in the house for about three months uh, over the summer. And, um, I discovered public radio and public radio, as you, you were probably aware of, they play a lot of things that commercial radio won't. Right. They have, you know, they have the new age music. They have the blues music. They have all these different radio shows and different kinds of music from Celtic to, to, you know, opera, just all these different things and jazz, of course, as well. And, um, I discovered some new music that I hadn't heard before on public radio, but more importantly, I discovered old time radio shows from the forties, fifties and sixties when there was, you know, television wasn't the, the huge thing that it is now. And, and they told stories with, with dialogue, like with the music talkies. and with yeah. sound, with, yeah, with, yeah, with dialogue, music and sound effects. And that was it. And so for a blind person, it was a revolutionary moment where I realized, Certainly. wow. This is a whole new universe for me. And I, you know, I could follow along with most TV shows about 85%. The car chases and love scenes aren't that great. <laughs> but, but the rest, you know, the rest I could follow along with dialogue pretty well. And if I don't know what's going on, I just lean over and say, what just, what just happened? But basically when I heard those sound effects and how much they made a difference in those old time radio shows, it occurred to me that I could do that, that I could create those audio landscapes. And that who better than a blind guy to do that? So I, my, my parents, uh, uh, you know, encouraged this interest and I went to, uh, a, a store that, that is no longer around called Radio Shack and I bought some <laughs> really cheap recording equipment and I just used the scientific method. I just started plugging stuff in and saying, what happens if I do this? What happens if I do that? Right. And I just started playing with audio and my parents really indulged it. And then. Um, I actually called that that DJ at the public radio station that was introduced to me this whole new world and told him how much it meant to me. And he actually came to visit me, taught me what he knew about audio. And then this is when I lived in Jacksonville, Florida. Then I moved to Macon, Georgia, which, as you may or may not know, is a pretty, pretty good mecca for, yeah. for southern southern rock and blues Allman music. Brothers. And Almond Brothers and Marshall Tucker. Yeah. Wet Willie. Otis Redding, Little Richard, uh, more, more currently Jason Aldean, you know, all these guys. Um, and, um, so, so, uh, anyway, uh, I moved to Macon when I was about 15 and my same friend, that DJ that I'd met, you know, when I was 13, mm. happened to know and be on the phone with the person that ran the local planetarium here in my hometown. Oh, wow. And he was saying what a terrible time he was having with his sound. And my, my DJ friend said, I, I know this kid that's pretty sharp. You should get him to come be your sound tech. And so I, I got my first job working at the planetarium as a sound tech. Well, what happened then? And this is a long way of getting to your question, but what happened at that point was that some of the people that were there that were, they were older than me, mostly mm -hmm. 18, 21, that kind of thing that volunteered there and worked there. A lot of kids, they started coming to me and say, Hey, we understand you have some recording equipment. Can we, will you record our band? Oh, wow. And, and I said, yeah, absolutely. I'll be, I'll record. And then when I heard that first garage band play a song they'd written, a, another sort of light bulb went off. It was another watershed moment for me. And I said, man, I, this is, this is how I want to tell my story. Music is the vehicle wow. through, what, through which I'm going to do that. And I just, just was basically obsessed 
with music from that point on. And, and that's just, it just, it is really like a, it is part of me. It's an extension of my spirit. And so not to do it is very painful for me and it, and it is very strange. And I had to have a complete shoulder replacement in 2018. And for about six weeks, I couldn't raise my right arm at all. And, uh, wow. and then, you know, for another, probably for another four or five weeks, I, was, I couldn't play the guitar at all. And it was miserable. <laughs> I just was like, Jeez. Oh my God. And it is so, and then one day I'll never forget my wife. Uh, you know, it was my wife actually, I'm, I, I'm living the dream cause I married a nurse. So, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so, um, but, but she, uh, heard me playing some guitar and I wasn't supposed to move my right arm, but I have a really strong left hand. So I was just actually playing with just my left hand. Holy cow. And she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, it's just my left hand, it's just my left hand. <laughs> you know? But I just couldn't take it anymore. Right. I was like, Oh my God, I gotta do something. And you know, there's some things you obviously can't do one handed. Yeah. Uh, but, but I, I could run some scales and stuff like that. And at least, at least feel reconnected because the guitar doesn't feel like a tool. It feels like an extension of my body. You know, it doesn't, it just is. Um, so, so it, it, it you know, it, just not doing music is it, but I am literally obsessed with music. I, I wake up in the morning to music. I, I work all day recording or producing or performing. And then I come home uh, on my off time and listen to more music. So that's, <laughs> you know, wow. I mean, I do other things as well, but music is a, a huge. I mean, it, it, it really takes up a lot of bandwidth in my, in my spirit, in my mind. Yeah, no, certainly. And it's a, it's a healthy, uh, practice too. Certainly. I think music obviously is, is the, when the, there's a quote that says it's when, when I think it's like when words fail, music speaks. Um, it does. and it's the truth because, you know, I do concert photography and stuff like that. And I know there's a guy that you had the uh, pleasure of opening with, uh, before Ted Nugent and oh, yeah. those shows always bring, you know, it's like, it's a, I'm, I, I'm able to separate, you know, politics and music because I Absolutely. think everyone should. And I'm so, I'm so stoked. I'm like, this is going to be a great, I'm like, I just hope there's, you know, none of this drama stuff and people just come and they, I said, what are you here for? You're here because Ted Nugent's music is good, isn't it? Yeah. Like, yes, but I said, okay, well, that's what you paid your ticket for. Just stop and, there. And the, exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, that's the thing is the, there's not many things that can, especially with what's happening in our country right now, there is not many things that can be done that could throw all those problems out the door, but music can. Uh, it's just absolutely. remarkable. Now, when it comes to the, the audio stuff, I have to ask, cause I, I started to go to school for, for audio, uh, you know, classes. I did uh, intro to recording, advanced recording and stuff like that. Um, something that really guarded my interests, um, a, a lot lately. And for you, how does, you know, the mixing and how, do, how are you able to do that? Like, um, I mean, is there like modif, I mean, how does the counts, how do you interact and do that stuff? It's fascinating. I just, I, w- I want to know how it's done. Yeah. Well, so there's, there's, there's basically two answers to the question. The the first one is that all the analog gear, um, which I have come to value as kind of equipment that gives you the character that you want. Right. Um, all that stuff is really accessible if you've got, an aptitude for understanding signal flow. And if you have an aptitude, you know, if you have a really good memory, which I, which I do. So the great thing about that is the third knob on the left always does the same thing. 
Um, and then uh, on the digital side, that's where things get challenging because everything's screen driven. So um, there are some things that I don't really have access to. It's one of the things that I work really hard. I fight for um, when I'm talking to companies and I'm talking to, you know, different different uh, people in the music industry, especially like music manufacturers, people that make software, hardware. You know, I, I don't. I don't want to be unreasonable. Uh, I, I own a small business myself, and I understand that you can't, you know, if if I was to say, let's say there's a new program that came out today that I wanted to buy, but it's not accessible for me. I understand it takes about two years to bring a new product to market, and I understand that retrofitting a program you have now to make it accessible for the blind is probably not the best use of your time or money because by the time you're done getting it accessible – the new products out. Mm. So what I'm asking people to do is let's think about accessibility from the ground up when you're making your new products, giving you a two or three year window to do that. And if we think about accessibility from the get go, then it's not such a struggle and it's not such a hard, you know, uh, time, time drain or, or, or financial drain, you know, so, so, uh, but we do have some tools. Um, there are things called screen readers and they read the screen, uh, on the computer for you. So there's a lot of different ones. Um, I have all of them because, <laughs> because some of them work really well in certain applications and some of them don't. And it's kind of trial and error to figure out which one. I mean, sometimes a Mac works better. Sometimes a PC works better. Right. Um, so you have all these different screen readers and the thing is every time there's an update, typically the accessibility breaks and then you have then hopefully by the next update, the accessibility is fixed again. So it is a constant struggle. So sometimes I have to, I mean, it is frustrating sometimes that there are things that like, you know, a six year old could do that I can't do for myself (laughs) because, you know, blind people can't really use the mouse, you know, so there's, you can't use the mouse. Um, that's, that's tricky. Um, but I can, I, I basically just what I call grab a pair of eyes. So anyone that's nearby, I'm like, Hey, you're going to see a red box on the screen. You need to click the lower right hand corner of that with the mouse. Okay, wow. cool. Thanks. You know, so I, I can do something like that. Um, or sometimes I have an assistant that works with me, but I prefer to be as independent as, as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And again, that's why most of what I do. I use analog equipment for and, and not, not the computer. Now I don't record ah. analog tape. Because analog tape, nobody wants to pay for it. Right. It's expensive. Um, it's exp- the ta- just the blank tape is really expensive. And then the maintenance on the machine is expensive. And it's, you know, so if you're Jack Douglas or somebody who has, has, uh, who I don't know if you know, but he, Jack produced, uh, some, some, uh, John Lennon. He produced most of, uh, Aerosmith's catalog. Oh, wow. You know, he's working with bands that can afford to pay him to, to do what he does. And he, right. I saw him about a year and a half ago or, or two years ago at at a conference, and uh, he was saying that he's gone to an all analog studio in L.A. Wow! And he just he just doesn't, you know, he's just not going to do digital. He just he just doesn't want to do it. He's like, I'm going back to the format that I made all the hit records on, and you know, people can can pay me for the privilege, and that's awesome. He can do that. I cannot do that. Right. <laughs> so I have to be in in a different world where you know people want to be able to use. Uh, the, the different plugins and they want me to be able to send them a file in London, uh, through Dropbox or whatever. Much you know, so, yes. I mean, they, they, they want to be able to collaborate internationally. 
with with people in different studios and they want to be able to um you know do all the different things that we do digitally. So like I say I'm in that domain but but basically it boils down to I have an affinity for understanding you know what I'm doing and and it, it's a natural it's just an it just it comes very naturally to me and then secondly I have a really great memory and then on top of those things I have some accessibility tools and then uh, I also have the, the, you know, I can get people when I need them. Right. That's just incredible. Now, since you touched on the, the analog way, I have to ask, because I know I have some friends, um, in, uh, the, the music biz who, who went down to Muscle Shoals, uh, the Almond Betts band, um, sure. uh, Aldi, they're the guitar tech for Devin. Um, he, he told me that, the, their first record, the, the Almond Betts band, Down in the River, that was done at Muscle Shoals, analog, they, they, all these people who do this analog recordings, they, they, all they say is, it's the sound. It sounds so much better. It sounds so much different. As an audiophile, as someone who's lived life, you know, by, just by hearing, what is that difference? Because I can't hone in on the difference. Like they could play the, a digital recording and then, you know, someone, something done analog, but like, it sounds the same. Is there really that big of a difference or is it more of uh quality? I, I don't know what, what is it that, well, that differentiates, you, you know, like, like in most things in life, I think a combination of the two is really where it's at. Okay. Um, so the, the first, this is an interesting question. I actually teach music technology for two universities here in town. Oh, wow. So, um, uh, I'm going to give you my nerdy answer here. <laughs> um, so the, the fact is that, um, when you record the analog tape, there's a basic, and you know this because you've, you've been doing recording. So there's something called signal to noise ratio. And, uh, by virtue of a, a piece of equipment that has an electrical signal passing through it, there is a certain amount of system noise that is inherent in the machine functioning. So we call that our noise floor. Mm. So the goal is to get the level loud enough that it masks the noise floor, but not so loud that it distorts or clips the signal. Right. Well, when you in, in digital technology, you can distort the input, but you cannot distort, distort. the waveform. Right. Right. So, it, it, you know, in digital technology, I can make the waveform as big as I want. And it does not in any way warp or alter the waveform. Now I can make it so loud I can't play it back that my speakers can't handle it or something like that. Right. But it, it, it doesn't do, but on analog tape, now some people will argue with me about this, but, uh, on analog tape, and in my opinion, really only two inch tape, in my opinion. Now there are some people that disagree with this, <laughs> but on, on the two inch analog tape, you can really get what's called harmonic distortion or tape saturation. Wow. And so what's happening is right before you you oversaturate the tape and make it distorted, there's a sweet spot where everything gets really fat and warm and just big and just sounds very organic. Interesting. And and so that is that is that is a, the magic of analog tape. It is a it actually when you look at it, it is a limitation of the medium. The tape itself has a limitation. And so, uh, but most of us feel that we love right before it goes into over, you know, oversaturation and sounds nasty. We feel like it sounds so beautiful. So it's actually a limitation of, of the analog tape. Digital does not have that limitation. So 
in a perfect universe, what I would do is I'd record everything on analog tape. Mm-hmm. And then I would transfer that over to the computer because editing on analog tape is a pain and editing on the computer is a real breeze. So, uh, for editing purposes, I would, I would do all digital, uh, and for, for the maximum bandwidth, uh, so in other words, maximum freaks, frequency response and durability of the medium, I would, I would do digital. Wow. But I would tr- I would track everything initially on analog. So what I've done in my studio to sort of try to get the best of both worlds is I record everything digitally because again my clients just don't have the budget for analog tape. Mm-hmm. And but I use all analog outboard gear. So I use like all these analog Neve mic pre's and uh, uh you know I've got SSL stuff and and API and all these wonderful uh t- you know uh different different uh boutique uh, mic pre's and EQs mm-hmm. and, and tube, you know, tube mic pre's and tube EQs and compressors. And I use all that stuff to give it the analog character that I love so much while recording to the computer. Cause that's just economically and just realistically how we do music, you know, do things in the music business these days, especially at the level, you know, where I've, I've had the honor to work with some big stars, but I don't do that constantly. So right. a lot of my clients are, are, are sort of in the mid level. Uh, of the music business, uh, on their way up, you know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, those guys don't have the same budget as I'd say a John Lennon or, you know, somebody like that. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, so, so you have to, you have to be realistic. So, but that's, that's kind of why. So yeah, I mean, there is a difference between strict analog recording and strict digital recording. But these days, one of the reasons you're probably having a harder time, you know, telling which is which is that so many people are kind of doing what I'm doing, which is to use all this beautiful analog outboard gear. Like your compressors and mic pre's and mm-hmm. stuff like that, but still recording digitally. So you're, you're, what you're mostly uh, hearing these days is a hybrid. Um, okay. And it's just like people love vinyl. Technically speaking, though, vinyl. I love vinyl too. Although as a blind person, I I I, I don't like it because you it's hard to skip songs and you you know I can't see the needle and I'm different. trying to find. <laughs> yeah. Um, listen, when I was a kid, I had I had to buy like. Six or seven copies of Michael Jackson's Thriller because I kept scratching, scratching mine up so bad. Oh, <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh, eventually I went to cassette and said, forget it, I'm done with vinyl. But um, my last album we did at Sun Studio in Memphis, which I've never recorded in another studio besides mine before. But we were on tour and we had some time and we we're like, let's let's go in here and just do something old school. And we did. It was really fun. And I was like, man, we gotta we have to press vinyl for this because that is the sound. And so again, vinyl technically speaking is sort of a limited medium, the the highs are not as crisp on vinyl. You're not getting as full of frequency response as you would on a CD right. on vinyl. But it's, it is that actual limitation that gives vinyl that sound that people love so much. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating. It's just like, I don't know if you, you know, if you, you listen to the B3 organ. Um, oh yeah. There's a, which, that's in a lot of uh, the, uh, the the music that I listen to, like I think Mike sure. Flanagan, he I think he absolutely. plays and stuff like that. Marty Salmon and Buddy Guy's band. Buddy Guy, yeah, absolutely. So I mean, the B three, you know, it, it has this grinding sound. It's right. got this clicking sound. Those are all actually mechanical flaws in the instrument, and yet the grit and the dirt and it just it just appeals to us wow. as human beings because it it it's actually the flaws that make it better. And there was a time in the early to mid nineties where, where Hammond introduced a digital B3 and they didn't sell very well because they were too perfect. They, they sounded too clean and nobody wanted that. And I mean, you know, so, so, so I mean, 
it, it is actually it's it's so interesting to me. We can actually make this analogous to human beings because it is the fact that we're all uniquely different. Right. You know, that we are all really different. And why are we different? Well, we're different because we've all had different experiences. We have different limitations. We have different strengths. And all those things color us and turn us into unique beings. So I think, you know, the, I always think that even my flaws can work to my advantage. You know, I can't see or smell. And I told my wife, I, I, I tricked her into marriage. I said, listen, <laughs> you'll always look and smell perfect no matter what you do. If you marry me. And then, <laughs> so, I mean, and she's like, I'll take it. <laughs> We've been married 17 years, so it worked out. That's so awesome. I, I say all that to say is like, you know, it, it, it the, the, the whole, it's just good music that stays with you that, that you listen to over decades and not, not just for a year or a month or whatever. Mm-hmm. That is music that has character. And where does the character come from? The character comes from blood, sweat and tears. It comes from flaws. It comes from the human experience of us speaking with our souls through music. So, that's that's I think the beauty of analog uh, is it, it helps us to capture those those human organic parts of the recording process. Yeah, it's just uh, I mean you it was like penetrating me with information, but I liked it because it was something. I mean, there was uh, it was good to get an actual answer on that because I've always wanted yeah. to know. I mean, well, I could I could go on forever, but I won't. <laughs> but I. That's <laughs> oh, awesome. So now. Um, I'm, I'm guessing it's obviously then the same with the guitar. Certainly way different learning and playing the guitar for you than it would be for many others with not being able to see. But at the end of the day, Joey, the thing that I've learned is that no matter how much people critique one another as far as guitar playing goes, because those people are everywhere, oh, yeah. is I've learned that, especially with the genre being the blues, what you hear coming uh, out of those speakers, 95% of it is the heart and soul. The other 5% of it is just knowing where to play on the fretboard, kind of. The instrument yeah. and the guitar player's soul and emotion is literally is all that's penetrating your ears. What was it, though, and was that more of a challenge for you learning to play the guitar than it was to pick up the audio, um, you know, the the producing background? Or was it still kind of, you know, the, the same type of, uh, you know, trial and error? Well, I think, yeah, I think anytime you're mastering any craft, there's a bit of trial and error. But yeah, I mean, um, the interesting thing about me, and, and I'm not really someone that believes in astrology, but that being said, uh, I have to admit that I embody the sign Gemini beautifully because, uh, you know, they're the, the old twin and the young twin. I have a very frivolous side and a very serious side, and I have a very analytical nature and also a very artistic and spiritual nature. So, um, my path to learning the guitar well, uh, to the point that I was only limited by my imagination came through very serious study, uh, mm. and also just playing a lot, just keeping the instrument in my hand. Right. So because I can't see the frets and see the strings and stuff like that, I had to do things that really put me in touch with my neck. So that I really knew where I was. And the guitar is a beautiful instrument, but it's very counterintuitive. Whereas the piano is beautifully intuitive and is laid out so logically. Then that's, that's honestly why there's a lot of blind piano players is because hmm. it's so tactile and it makes sense. And, and honestly, a lot of people, uh, say to me, Hey, are, they hear that I'm blind. And they assume that I play piano. Wow. <laughs> and they say, Hey, well, you can play piano for us. Like, no. You you don't want that. <laughs> I don't want that. <laughs> right. I, I play piano at the low side of adequate. So 
Um, in the studio, I sound okay because I cheat. Uh, but, but, but live, it would be a disaster. Um, but so my very first teacher, um, that, that taught me guitar taught me more in, in his time teaching me for however long it was, um, than I learned when I went to college for, for music. Wow. And, um, he gave me a very good, he just under, he understood me. And not only that, he was called to be a teacher, which is really important. And so he, uh, taught me how to think of the instrument from a technical standpoint so that basically I would learn how to master the instrument so that I would only be limited by my imagination. Wow. And, and so that was his gift to me. And he started off by drawing uh, in a box of sand and he said, look, here's the deal. You can't see sheet music and you're not going to be able to read it, but I want you to at least understand conceptually what it looks like so you can talk to other people about it. And um, so he drew the staff and he said, here's what the staff looks like. Here's what the notes look like. And this is what they mean. So actually, when I've had students, uh, guitar students or whatever, I can teach them to read music, even though I can't see to do it. So uh, but then he, he gave me a very strong theoretical background understanding how music works and why these notes work together and what their functions are. And so, you know, it, it, I have a very deep use of theory that I use to compensate for no eyesight. Um, so when I play with a band uh, that I've never played with before, uh, depending on how complicated my part is and what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, I can play with them the first time somewhere between 85% to a hundred percent accurately and then the second time I play with them, I'll, I'll be 100%. And the reason is I can pick an instrument to listen to, whether it's the vocal or the bass or whatever whatever seems to be driving the, the, the music. Right. And I can predict based on all my time working with music theory and ear training and that kind of stuff, I can usually predict fairly accurately what's going to happen next. Uh, because music, while it has no boundaries um, – it, it it does have some uh, you know mathematical likelihoods wow. and uh so you know there's only 12 notes in the in the western pitch system uh in the eastern pitch system there are more cuz they do a lot of semitones and 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 things like that and quarter tones mm -hmm. uh and so um but there's like 19 pitches there but uh that's why if you're like you know like uh, like some of the chinese or japanese music some of us think that it's out of tune it really isn't it's just a different uh, system of pitch uh, values. But here, you know, and, and so there's 12, 12 total notes in the Western pitch system. And then typically most people only use about seven of those, you know, uh, at a time in a, in a song. You can use more if you're really clever, but, uh, you know, most music doesn't. So, um, you know, having a very good understanding of how notes function and, you know, what things really work well together. Um, you know, it gives you a pretty good, a pretty good guess of what's going to happen next. Uh, and you can pick up cues from the bass or the vocal or something like that, like where things are going, where things are headed. And based on what happened, you know, what happened two measures before, you can predict what's probably going to happen about four bars ahead of that. So anyway, um, yeah, I, I, I definitely play from the heart and the soul, uh, but I have my, my mind to help me you know, overcome the fact that I can't see the other musicians. So I can't pick up on visual cues. Um, I can't read the sheet music. I can't have a chart and sort of cheat, uh, by just looking at the chart, you know, so, so that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a lot of work, 
but you know, when you, when you love it, it doesn't feel like work. You know, it's just like, Oh, I want to be good at this. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think that's the thing everyone wants to, to, to yeah. reach in life where you could just, it could be work, but it don't feel like work. Um, it doesn't, it, it really doesn't. Cause it's just so much fun to do it. And, and, and it just, it, it means that the thing that's really incredible is I have a good time doing it, but people have a good time listening to it. And that connection that's more is a important. beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. It's so exciting. It's so exciting to perform and for people to, 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 to understand you. And that's another great thing about music in general, blues in particular, is that you are really sharing yourself and, and you're, you're giving energy and you're getting it back from the audience. And that's, that is a really wonderful thing. There's no other experience that I know of that allows you to have that really personal interaction with people right. and, and never have met them before. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's remarkable. And I, I, something that I thought was quite interesting was when you got out of college, um, you got in with Steve Jordan, one of the best, not only because of the fact he's from Chicago, that's where we're fine <laughs> from, but because of the fact he's just freaking incredible. What was Nuts. that experience like f- for you? Uh, humbling, certainly. Yeah. I mean, Really incredible. You know, he has a two-handed uh, technique, and it really does a lot of stuff uh, tapping. Now, I come from when I when I learned um, guitar, uh, the, the the music I learned was classical, and the reason for that, my my teacher was like, "You can play whatever you want, mm-hmm. but when we study, let's study classical because that's going to give you all the technique that you'll Theory. need." to play everything else that you want to play. Right. And so I said, okay, so, you know, I would study classical and then I would take my, my new superpowers and turn them to evil and play blues (laughs) and and, and rock and whatever I want to play. And, and, you know, I love classical guitar. Uh, I do love it, but, um, it is not, you know, you can't really make it sing and cry like you can the blues. You know right. what I mean? You can't, you don't do all those bends and all that kind of stuff. It just, it just isn't the same thing. And so, um, you know, but, but Stanley is just, was an incredible player and I'll never play like he plays. And that's cool. Cause I shouldn't, I mean, I should play like I play, but he, uh, the reason I mentioned the classical background is I have fingernails on my right hand. Uh, I just got used to using them on the classical guitar. And even though I play, Mostly with the pick, whenever I do finger style stuff, like, you know, then, then I'll, I'll play with my hand. And, um, and so, uh, I, I can't, because of the nails on my right hand, I can't put my hand in the same position he does to tap. Right. He almost plays the guitar like a piano. Um, so I have to come, when I do tapping, I have to come from the side. So he'll, he'll have his hands kind of on the guitar, almost like Jeff Healy in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll, except that he doesn't put it in his lap. Uh, but he'll kind of play it like that. And I can't do that because I have nails in that right hand and I'm so used to those that it would be an impediment not to have them. So uh, I have to tap sort of sideways and bring my hand kind of across. Um, so I'll never, I'll never do that tapping like, like he does. And honestly, like as much as I love the sounds that he creates, I mean, they're incredible, right? but, but it's not really the sound that I want. I, I wanted to, immerse myself in it enough to understand it and see if I wanted to pursue it. Um, but, but I, I mean, I, I mean, I should practice it, but I'm not. Everyone's different. (laughs) And uh, to, to, to correct myself, I know, um, I had Steve Jordan in my mind, but it's actually Stanley, like, like you said, Um, I was thinking Steve, I don't know why that came out, but, uh, that's all right. 
Yeah. He'll take um, it. <laughs> yeah, he's also he's a good drummer though. Yeah, he's a great oh, drummer. Yeah. Um another one of the the great ones. Now, when you when you got all your stuff together in 95, uh debut album came out. From there it was kind of off to the races. How was the process evolved for you for songwriting over the years? And could you break down the process for you like uh you know, f- you know, putting putting together choruses, bridges, bringing the whole process to fruition? What is that what is that process like and how has that evolved over the years for you as a musician? Well, the biggest difference now versus then is I I used to be uh I still am obsessed with uh, uh, music, but I was new at it. Um and when the first record came out, I had a lot of problems with that record because um a lot of the people around me didn't understand what I was going for and kept saying mm. you don't want to do that and I was like, "Yes, I do want to do that." And, and, and I, I said, look, I'm not saying that I'm right and you're wrong. What I'm saying is that this is what I'm, this is what I'm called to do. This is how I'm going to do it. And if it turns out not to be a good idea, I will own that. Right. But, but I have to follow my artistic vision, whether it's right or wrong. I'm, I'm doing it my way because that's, I have to make art my way or it's not my art. And so um, it wasn't that I wasn't open to advice because I certainly was and I certainly took some advice. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if I wanted to do it a certain way and nobody else wanted to do it that way, I was like, I'm paying you. You're going to play it my way. So <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> at the end of the day, I'm paying you to do a service. I understand you don't like that drum roll or you don't like. And, and you know, I was young, man. I was really young. And, and, and I wrote every single lick, every single drum fill, every single. Every single All drum, parts, line, every part, every part, every Jeez. part. I was so, I was so, and honestly, I, I was, I, I over controlled it. I mean, it, in retrospect, that's insane. Um, yeah, in retrospect. So now, what I do um, is number one. When I was really young, uh, I had to seize the inspiration when it hit me. I can't tell you how many times I, I told my dad, I was like, Dad, Dad, write this down. He'd grab a napkin or whatever was around and write down the song lyric that came mm-hmm. to me. Or, or whatever. Wow. And I would, I was very dedicated. So if I would, if I woke up in the middle of the night with a song in my head, I would get out of my bed and, and go grab my guitar and go find a, a tape recorder or something. And I'd sit there and work on it until I had that idea firmed out. So now, um, so, so the, the, the first processing was I over controlled all the musicians around me. Uh, and <laughs> then secondly, sometimes to good effect and sometimes not. And then secondly, I had, I, I had to seize the inspiration when it came. I couldn't access it later. Now the difference is that I surround myself with talented people. And while I still give them broad outlines of what I want and occasionally specific, like, Hey, I want this here and that right, here. Of course I let them, they, they say to me, what do you want? And I say, do you? Because I ask you to play on this record because of, because of what you do. Right. So just be you. And by and large, you know, it doesn't mean I don't have, hey, I'd rather rather have you go high here instead of low or, hey, I'd rather you not play during this part. Or I mean, I'm not saying I don't I don't give that guidance, but it's much more of a collaborative process. And I don't invite people to participate um, if they don't have something to, to, to offer. And if I cannot just let them be themselves and get something amazing that I wouldn't have thought of. So that's different. And also I'm able to access the inspiration anytime so i can literally set down to write something and write something wow. uh, so i have i have thoughts uh i have uh 
you know, ideas for songs that float through my mind and I can wait until they've germinated a little bit and, uh, uh, you know, and, and just, and then go back to that inspiration when it's convenient to do so. I don't have to immediately get it down or lose it. Wow. So, um, you know, but that being said, I still try to get it down as quick as I can, but mainly not because I'm scared I'm lose it, but mainly because once I get it out of my, my brain, I can clear space for something new. new. Yeah. If I, I know it sounds kind of weird, but I can, I, I can clear space for something new. Whereas if I leave it in there, they got just, too many, too many things like, up there. It's like, oh, wait, yeah, yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. And, and that's why I always tell people that are songwriters. I was like, look, no matter how much you hate the song you're working on, like you, you get an inspiration and halfway through the inspiration peters out and you're like, oh, this isn't any good. This isn't any good. Always finish what you started because you'll get in the habit of not finishing things if you don't do that. And you need to go ahead and finish what you started and then you'll make room for some new inspiration to come into your, to your mind. And even if you end up not liking the song, no one's going to hear it but you. So what does it matter? Right. And you can always go back and cannibalize it later. You might say, Oh man, you know, the chorus I wrote to that song three years ago, it was the only good part of that song is the chorus, but I've written a verse here and boy, that chorus would really work. You just go back and, you know, borrow from yourself. So I, I just think, you know, um, the thing is you should carefully control what you release, but I don't think you should carefully control what you write down. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It doesn't deal. work. Yeah. No, that's uh, <laughs> a great point. And there's, I mean, just with talking to you, I've been able to draw a lot of, um, similarities between someone else that I've been fortunate enough to speak with, like Tom Hambridge. Um, I mean, the process, there's a lot of things that you've touched on that, that he did. And I, I mean, it's just, I think it's more of a, a song. You're a songwriter. That's what you do. You write songs. I mean, it's just second nature. Um, now when you touched on having someone come into a studio session and you know, you want them, you brought them in to be them. You don't want them to conform to, Oh, Joey usually likes this. He brought you in for what you do. Do you still, um, you know, run into that problem with uh, musicians still to this day where you're like, okay, he's nervous. He's trying to, I know if he just let it, lets it go and breaks free, this is going to be special. Do you still have that problem with younger musicians today? And are they, I mean, how do they snap out of that? Well, the best thing you can do is nurture them. So, so what I like to do, uh, I have two tricks that I use uh, and I'll share with you today when I'm in the studio, because a lot of being a producer is actually about psychology. Hmm. It's all about making people feel creative, making people feel excited, make them feel comfortable. Hmm. So the studio is a very clinical environment. And so we work really hard at my studio not to, to make it feel more like a home and to make it not feel so corporate and so so intimidating. Interesting. Uh, you walk, you know, you walk in, you see this huge amount of gear and all this stuff and you're like, Oh my God, you know? And, and so, and, and of course you're paying, you know, you're paying. So you're thinking, Oh my God, I don't know. I want if I don't want to waste any time, I can't afford to make any mistakes. I can't, right. you know, y- you get in that headspace. You're trying, I call it red light syndrome, where as soon as you see the red <laughs> light come on, you're like, Oh my God. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I do two things. So one thing I'll do is say, Hey, let's just run through it a time or two, let you get comfortable and then we'll record it for real. And of course, I'm already recording, mm-hmm. but they don't know that. So we might get lucky. We might get lucky when they're, when the, when they feel like the pressure's not on, we might get lucky. They may, they may do a great take and they'll go, Oh, I wish I'd recorded that. Like, ah, but we did. Right. <laughs> you know? So we, so like, I'm always recording because you never know what's going to happen. Um, and the second thing is I crack a lot of jokes 
And I told them, oh, they say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. We're going to have to do it again. I'm like, oh, hey, man, I get paid by the hour. Make as many mistakes <laughs> as you want. I mean, it's just, just new shoes for mama. So, you know, so, so, you know, just silly stuff like that. But another thing I do is I'll let them run through without any guidance from me. I'll let them run through the song, you know, a couple of times. And, and then once they've done it and kind of gotten the nerves off and, you know, nobody said that was terrible or, you know, anything like that. Then I will come in with constructive criticism. I'll go, you know, I really love what you did here. We'll start with that. What what did I like about that take? And then I'll say, but you know, I think we can do better. I think I think you got a better take in you if we go back here and work on this this part. Wow. And you know, some days you get down the weeds and you literally have to record line by line, uh, and you have to say, okay, sing this part. Okay, great. That's we. Okay, let's try that again. Okay, now we got that part. Okay, now sing this part. Sometimes you have to go line by line and just and just get it. Um, but you know, usually, not always, but usually I can help them find their their center and and get focused and have and if they're having fun, everything's better. So if they're having yeah, fun, they feel, you know, if so so I mean, yeah, it still happens to everybody. Even even seasoned pros sometimes get in their own way. You know, they get in their head and they get they get they get tense and they're not loose and you know even even seasoned pros do that. One of the things that I did uh, recently and this record hasn't come out yet, um, but um, I've I've got to work on it. It's just finding time. But um, one of the things I did was I locked the band uh, in the studio for three days. Wow! And we just like I, I had eleven songs I'd written. Uh, I did no pre-production work, which is unusual. I usually do a lot of pre-production work, uh, so that when people come in, everything's very organized. And I did no pre-production work. I had, they're all sighted musicians that read music well. So I gave them charts that I'd had a friend of mine, uh, help me to create. And it just had the chords and the melody on it. And I said, okay, let's, uh, let's, let's try some of these songs out. What if we did this? What if we did that? Let's just have fun and experiment. Right. And see what happens and see what gels and whatever. And so if it, if, if, if one person liked it, but n- nobody else was really digging it, we'd throw that idea away and, until we, until we played something that everybody was like, Oh man, that was great. And when you, when everybody said, Oh man, that was great. And these, you know, keep in mind that these musicians are, uh, I, I'm the youngest in, in my early forties here. So, uh, everybody else was, you know, uh, uh, you know, at least around the same age or there's one of my guys was, you know, in his late fifties. Um, and, and, and all, most of these guys have been playing 20, 30 years. So when everybody was excited, you knew you had something. And, and that was, that was, that's a really neat way to do it. I'm not saying it's right for every single project because it isn't. But but it was fun and it's a neat way to try. So you know the other thing is try different things till you find what works for you. I mean I can't tell you how many people you know, like to have the lights turned out or the lights dimmed when they're singing. Um, I don't get it because I can't see. It doesn't matter to me one way or the other. <laughs> uh, you know, but but it's like you know they it helps them feel. It helps them get into the mood. So look if you if you want to if you want me to put a lamp in there for you and and we turn the lights down low and. And you, and that helps you, then do that. If you gotta take your shoes off, take your shoes off. I mean, whatever, you know, whatever makes you feel comfortable within reason. Uh, I don't really prefer people to be nude when they're singing if I can help it, cause there's, then that means I have to go clean everything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want that. <laughs> but if, I mean, you know, uh, the, the thing is, if I, I mean, they may, they may well be nude and I just not know it. 
<laughs> so it could be possible. But, uh, but I mean, yeah, that's, that's the thing about, about when you're an artist, just like find that place that helps you create. The only thing that I will say, uh, count, that's sort of a counterpoint to that is I personally try hard not to get in a habit where I need something to create. In other words, I don't want to be locked into, oh, if I don't have my lucky pick and my lucky socks on, I can't write. Uh, or if I, you know, oh, superstitions. Yeah, like I gotta have, well, actually, I I guess it'd be more like ritual, right? Like I don't want to be, I don't want to get in a ritual where I I have to do X, Y, Z. And if I can't, my whole day is just ruined. I remember we were playing with the B-52s and the drummer for the B-52s, uh, was freaking out because he didn't have a, a, a pair of gloves. Wow. Uh, he used a certain kind of golf glove. And, uh, somehow he just didn't bring them with him or something. So he was frantically running around asking people to go find him these golf gloves, you know, cause he, he, he couldn't play without them. And mm-hmm. I thought, wow, that's a terrible, that that's sucks. a terrible position to put yourself in that you have to have, you know, my definition of, I'm not saying that I don't understand that he felt like he needed those and maybe he did for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, a professional is someone that takes what they've, what, whatever they're given. And makes it work. Now, do I have preferences? Yes, I have preferences. Uh, but I will take whatever you give me and I'll make it work. And, and I think, I think that's a real, I think that's the true definition of, of a professional, not someone that has to, you know, have to have, Oh, if my water's not room temperature and my day's wrecked, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not making fun of those people. I, I understand the preference, but I don't think it's to be so much of a, a ritual or a habit or whatever you want to call it that you just can't function without it. Yeah, no, certainly. Um, I mean, and the, the, the funny thing is there as far as those rituals and things of functioning without it. I've seen that because working in hospitality at the theater that I work at in St. Charles, the Arcata Theater in St. Charles, Illinois, there's a lot of artists that come in and on their on their on their sheet. Like they're very particular, yeah. like Kenny G. He's great. But he was very particular about what kind of food. He oh, wanted yeah. certain plants. And I'm like, okay. And then there was one artist who was just really particular. Great musician. Absolutely just great. Dwight Yoakam, who was yeah. the same way. He had like a 15 page, you know, thing. I'm like, <laughs> it was like everything, you know, but oh. it's like over the years. I mean, you think these guys have been doing it for 30 plus, 40 plus. I mean, and it's still got to be that way. I, I think it has I mean, to be I- a mental thing, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you just get locked into it and then you feel, and so I really work hard not to do that. My wife worked in, um, hospitality at Opryland okay. in Nashville, uh, when she was going to college. And one of her writers was, I, I think it was the band Alabama that they required Nutella. Uh, but she had to drive, <laughs> she had to drive to another state to find some Nutella so they'd have it in their, in their, That's uh, great. Oh, man. <laughs> when she, when she worked it with, and on, on conversely, when she worked it with, uh, um, Jimmy Buffett, uh, he said, yeah, pizza, chip, beer. Yeah. That's it. That's good. Oh, good. That's how it should be. I like that. Yeah. You know, and so, Hey, we're, we, we just think we're lucky if we have a right. room. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the funny thing was, was, uh, I think the best one was before I get on to the next few questions was, uh, Scotty McCreary when he came to the theater. And, uh, I mean, he was, this was about two years after, th- no, this is longer after this, probably like four or five years after, um, his American Idol stint. Um, he comes and it was right in the middle of March Madness and he comes off the bus and they have everything ready. 
They go, what do you want? We didn't see any food on, you know, the ride. Are you? That's okay. I just want some Cheerios. We didn't have Cheerios. So he goes like this. He goes, could you get Cheerios? So we had our hospitality person literally go to the grocery store across the street, walk out with a gallon of milk and Cheerios. And he goes, thank you so much. I'm going to sit on the bus with the boys and just watch basketball. (laughs) That's all he wanted. (laughs) It was the greatest thing ever. There was no, no food, nothing. He, just a couple water bottles. He just wanted his Cheerios and milk. It was the funniest yeah, thing that, ever. That's great. Yeah, it's just. I think. I think that though goes back to the the youthful age at that time too. I mean, he's a young kid. I mean, they're sure. college age kids. But um, to transition into your work, I've listened to Six String Soldier probably. I don't know, fifteen times the past two days. Oh, um, fantastic! There's three songs on there that just I. Can't get over. It's blind man driving. I, there was a lot of, uh, I, a lot of SRV in this in the sense it was that honey over gravel voice. It was the rage without the anger. It was just absolutely in- incredible, incredible song. And then 10,000 miles was the one that played at my head a little bit. There was, yeah. um, there was a lot of Bob Seeger type of things in there that reminded me of, but the, the biggest thing was for me was the songwriting. It reminded me of when George Martin came to, uh, and came to, um, find the band America when he started working with them. There was a lot of America and George Martin songwriting type of things in that, in that song that I just, it's probably my favorite song off that album. Oh, that's fantastic. I really enjoy that, that track. And, um, it, it's interesting because a lot of the magic from, you know, from many of those tracks is, is not, I mean, the songwriting, yes, but, but the chords are really simple. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so they're very basic. The, the chord structure, I should say, is very basic that right. any, you know, anyone that's been playing guitar, you know, a couple of years could, could easily do or, or even less. But the, the real magic to me is, goes into the arrangement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so 10,000 miles has a, a complicated arrangement. So first there's the heart of the song, which you have know, verse courses, whatever. But I decided, you know, to change those courses up. So those courses have a, a, a very different feel than, uh, the, the verses. And they do because of the harmonies. I can totally get what you're saying about America. And then there's sort of a deceptive ending. I kind of make you think the song's over and it's not. Right. Yeah. Uh, there, there's that. And then there's, there's the intro. Uh, that's, I guess, kind of Pink Floyd sounding a little mm-hmm. bit or maybe, you know, something like that. And, and that is kind of the, you know, just the, I wanted there to be this sense of distance. Um, and I felt like the song in its core did not give you that sense of distance and, but it was talking about distance. So I felt like we needed to start off with that, with some kind of intro that I sort of, you know, wrote at the last minute just to give that sense of distance to make the lyrics a little more powerful. So I think that's I think that song is really cool. And and my buddy uh Henry Oliner uh is uh responsible for the 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 you know probably ninety percent of those lyrics. Okay. Um and and uh he he uh I sort of uh helped him with melody and with arranging. Gotcha. And did that. But it, it it's it's a it's a it's a really fun song that I like a lot. And, uh, I, I'm glad you like it. It's probably my favorite song on that record too. I think that's a, that's one of the better ones. Um, I, I like, I like some of the guitar play in the other songs, but I think, I think just, uh, just as a good, a good sort of 
you know, song. I really like that track a lot. And it's been used. Um, it was used in a, um, a documentary uh, about uh, Vietnam soldiers here in Georgia. No kidding. And wow. it's, it's, uh, it was used another, uh, one of my, actually some, a young lady that became one of my students, uh, one of my voice students actually, um, did, she was a local reporter for the local Fox station and, uh, she did a piece on me and used that song as the intro to the, to the, to the piece. Wow. Um, and, and it worked really, really well. And she actually won what's called a Gabby, which is like a Georgia, I forget what it stands like for, a like Georgia or something. Well, it's it's a Georgia Association of Broadcasters, I think okay. is what it's called. And so she won an award for for that piece. Uh, and I was really, you know, that she had done such a nice little. And really, it was like a like a three minute documentary. It was a, it was a nice piece. And um, and so she used that song. So a lot of people have have really gravitated to that track uh, for 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 dramatic purposes, which I like. I think that's kind of neat. For sure. And then the the one other track on there um, was uh, track seven, Mr. Mooney. It, remi- it screamed a lot of different things for me. Um, yeah. First thing was an 80 Rocks ballad. And then sure. the guitar playing in there struck a chord with me, no pun intended, with uh, a lot of similarities with Creed's One Last Breath, Mark Tremonti's finger, like that. I... I, I'll tell you, I have a one, one of my secret weapons is the Mark Tremonti wah pedal, and so is that used on there? Yeah, that, I use no that. On, <laughs> I, that is the one piece of equipment that that I am terrified to be without. Wow! So so much so that I have three of them no uh, in case one goes down. But this is a great track. And, I mean, it was there, there was so many. It almost sounded a little bit sometimes like. Um, Maybe it was just a, a false sense of, you know, I was just lying to myself, but there was so much, it sounded a lot. There was so many similarities with one last breath on, on some of the guitar playing in that song. It was just awesome. No, I totally can see that. And, and uh, it, th- that song, um, came actually from my first album. It was remastered um, then? It was remastered. Okay. Yep. It was remastered and I just felt like it fit with six string soldier and also, you know, here locally, Mr. Mooney, it, it, Mr. Mooney is a six minute and 42 second song. Mm-hmm. And if you're not famous, it's hard to get radio play a, as an independent artist with that long of a song. If it's not on the web, yeah, that's a good point. You know, but but with, with terrestrial radio and, uh, but I, I just felt like here locally, that song did really, really well. Like in, when I say locally, I mean like throughout the state of Georgia, right? We did really, really well with that song, but it was really hard to get, and I'm, I'm the official music ambassador for my hometown, Macon, Georgia. So, you know, I, I'm well known in, in throughout the, the state, but, uh, it was really hard to get terrestrial radio airplay, uh, commercially for that track when I released it back in the 95, uh, around that time. And so, um, I just wanted to give that song another chance. I just, I just wanted to, I wanted to put it out again since I was sending it to radio and, and stuff like that on the six string soldier record. I just wanted to give it another chance, but I thought it, I mean, I, I also thought that it made sense with the collection of tunes on there. Uh, and so I'm glad you liked that song. It, it you know, it does have a bit of the nineties flavor and sort of the, the, the ballad rock flavor, uh, which was still kind of prevalent back when I wrote it. And it, it was, that song's actually the first song I ever wrote and played for anybody. No kidding. It's a great song. I love it. Yeah. That was, that was the song that I was like, I was like, you know, and, and funnily enough, um, the, 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 uh, when I was in my first band and I was playing that song and I must, I was probably, I guess 20 or something like that. Oh, wow. 
and um, we the, all the girls in the audience started crying, and we're like, ah, you did I it. have something. I there have something go. here. <laughs> and so, but what the funny part was, I had written the first two verses, and I hadn't come up with a third verse that I liked. And the first three or four times we played that song live. I improvised a new third verse every time because I still wasn't happy. Holy cow. And yeah, that was really, I mean, the, 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 the true gusto and, and craziness of youth, Talk right? About I would OCD. never, Yikes. I would never do that today. <laughs> I would never do that today. I'd be like, Oh my God, no way am I going out here not knowing what right. I'm going to do. Um, but I, I, back then, you know, you just, you know, That's you're a little you're different. Cocksure, you know? Right. And, and so you just, you're like, ah, I can just make up something. And so, um, then eventually I finally did write the third, <laughs> the third <laughs> verse. Um, but you know, and I also borrowed, uh, heavily from, uh, the Beatles rubber soul album because they, there's a piano part in Mr. Mooney that's sort of a, uh, sort of has a classical motif, which, which they did in the rubber soul, uh, on places I remember. George Martin plays this nice little piano, electric piano solo, you know, and, and we didn't, we didn't, you know, use the, the, any of that melody, so we didn't steal it from, but the idea of having sort of a little classical piano break in a, in a sort of a ballady song was something that, you know, we, I thought from the Beatles. Certainly. So, uh, so, you know, I, I certainly sort of was inspired by that idea. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Joey, what would you say to, um, everybody out there listening, um, young and old alike who, may be going through life with the same, uh, you know, you know, issues with you being, or just being born blind. What would your message be to them who feel like there's no hope or feel like there's nothing they can do? What's your message to them about, um, you know, staying positive and knowing that there are outlets and resources and there are things you can do. And you're, you're a, you're a living, breathing example of that. Um, what, what's your message to, to the young and old alike out there who are going through what you're going through? Well, basically, you know, it doesn't really matter what you're going through when you're going to have moments in your life that things aren't working well. Uh, and, and oftentimes they'll be, they'll be beyond your control. Um, I try not to worry about things that I can't control. So I can't control being blind. That's nothing to do with me. Um, that was a brain tumor that I had no control over. Nobody could help that. But I have three basic, uh, uh, you know, things that I think about when I think about telling people, you know, you know, and trying to say, if I can do it, you can do it. Um, so I think I have sort of three ideas there. The, the first one is surround yourself with people that love you and want you to be happy. And, and don't make room in your life for people that make you feel unhappy, uh, because it's not worth it. And, and, and I mean, you know, you, you, you have to, you know, when you, when you follow your heart, which is my next piece of advice, you always follow your heart, do whatever it is that makes you happy. Um, the, follow that spark, follow that passion. If you're passionate about something, give, give some time and energy to that passion. If you do, you'll always be making the right decision. Now, that being said, there are people that will not understand your passion. There are people that tell you you shouldn't do that or you can't do it or that, does, or it doesn't make sense to do that. There's a lot of people whose families don't support them being in music. And that's unavoidable. Uh, yeah, but just don't, don't worry about those people. If you, you understand it and it makes you happy, then that's that's the big deal. So surround yourself with people that love you for who you are, uh, not any other reason. 
Uh, don't be afraid to say goodbye to people that don't love you and that, that don't support you the way you need. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, you're going to have to follow your passion, whether people understand it or not. And then thirdly, you know, it's, it's totally cool to say, I am not happy with my circumstance today. I'm not happy with how things are going to express that anger or frustration or, or bitterness. That's totally fine, but you can't stay there. You got to move out of that. I'm upset mode to, okay, now how am I going to make things better? And if you focus on the solution rather than the problem, you will find that your life goes much more according to your heart's desire. And I think it's really important to be honest with yourself. I mean, when I talk to my students, I'm like, look, if you want to be rich and have limousines and airplanes and tour the world and be a megastar, it's okay to want that. Just be honest about what you want. Uh, now there are certain things life is, life is, uh, life is commerce. So you're going to, you know, <laughs> yeah, the, no kidding. It, it's everything's available if you want to pay for it. And when I say pay for it, I don't necessarily mean money, but you, you know, if you're going to tour the world and be some sort of superstar, understand that you may not have a lot of friends, understand that you may not be able to do a lot of other things that eats up a bunch of time. And, you know, so, uh, you need to cherish those people around you even more. And, you know, un- understand that, that, you know, doing music for a living takes a lot of time and a lot of hard work and a lot of heartache. And there's a lot of crazy people in the business that, that, that are just, you know, nuts. And they're people that will promise you the moon and not deliver. And you just have to be, you have to be willing to live with all that. But you, you know, you just have to, you have to know what you want and decide if you're willing to pay the price to have it or not. If you're not, that's okay too. Go do something else that you're passionate about. You know, we're, we're more than just one thing. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm passionate about Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love, I love Star Wars stuff. So, you know, I mean, there, I have lots of interests besides music, but music is the one that gives me the power and the energy to get up. And the brain tumor gives me some health issues that I'm still fighting. Like I said, I had to have a complete shoulder replacement. I had to have a complete hip replacement. I spent six, seven months in a wheelchair. Mm. I've had a lot of different challenges, but that music is what helps me get up in the morning and wake up and go, okay, I don't feel well right now, but I'm going to get up. I'm going to get moving. I'm going to go do my thing. And it, it, it really motivates me to do that. Um, so it, it, it's, it, I use it and I give back to it and I use it as a way of, of managing some of my, some of my chronic health challenges. It helps me to stay focused and positive. It helps me to stay above the pain instead of under the pain. So, you know, there's a lot that I could say about that, but I, all I can tell you for sure is if you, if you love yourself and if you follow your passion and if you, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated, I really, I mean, it sounds simple, but those are like the, the big, the big things. And, and I mean, Ru, I, I've said all this has taken me 10 minutes to say it. RuPaul says it in a much easier way. RuPaul says, if you don't love yourself. How the hell can you love somebody else? That's right. And that's, that's basically, that's basically it, you know, but start with being okay with who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is the key. And so many of us don't, don't feel that way and, and, and don't, we're, we're uncomfortable with who we are. And how can anybody else be comfortable with who we are if we're not? So, I do know that it's possible. I've done a lot of amazing things when people thought I couldn't, when people said I couldn't. And, you know, the more you tell me I can't do it, the more I want to do it. Right. It's futile. <laughs> it's uh, futile. What is it they call it? Futile the fire? Or, or... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you use, you use those, you use those, those things to help you. So I believe that you can take any adverse circumstance and turn it to your favor. 
And, uh, you know, I, I told you earlier about that silly story, you know, where I told my wife that I couldn't see her smell, but she'd always look or smell good. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, that's not being able to see her smell is certainly a disadvantage in many ways, but I, right. I turned it around and used it to my, to, to my advantage. Like, well, I'm going to, even my flaws, I'm going to try and let work for me. So, you know, just awesome. but I, I, I do, I do believe in the power of the human spirit. And I do believe that, that people can do amazing, remarkable things that not only bless them, but bless other people with, with, with that. And, you know, you too can be an example to other people to find their true voice and to be who they are and, and to have the successful life of intention that they all deserve. So it, it's that to me is my, that is my success. That's what makes me happy. When I get a chance to chat with someone like you, when I get a chance to share my story, when I get a chance to be any kind of inspiration for someone, um, even, you know, I was, I was feeling pretty down, uh, cause I had that shoulder replacement and it was not as much fun as I'd hoped. Right. And I was feeling bad. I was like, Oh, and I, I just felt really bad. It had been a really hard surgery. Uh, they did a good job, but it was just a really hard hospital stay and I felt really bad. And the first day I was able to get out of the house and actually go somewhere with my buddy who was actually a drummer in my band, we went and I said, man, I got to start walking and getting my strength back. And he said, well, let's just walk around uh, this mall and, and, um, try to get your strength back. And when you're tired, we'll stop. And, I walked a little bit and we said, okay, let's go get something healthy to eat. So we went into this restaurant and it was a, like a steakhouse, but they, they have on their menus, like what the calorie count is. And they had a lot of healthy options too. So I went in and, and, um, I was feeling pretty rough and, and kind of, kind of like, man, will I ever get back to where I was? And this young lady in her twenties said, Hey, aren't you Joey Stuckey? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, you came and sang and talk at my school, um, when I was uh, a teenager. And she said, you're the reason I'm in the music. Wow. And I'm like, what? And she said, yeah, you're you're the reason. She said, you're the reason that I had the, the nerve to say, I want to be, I want to play the flute and I want to go to school to play flute. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a senior now in music school. And I said, could you say that again? (laughs) I was like, I needed to hear that today so badly. And I was just, I was so that, that was worth, I I was like, man, that was worth it all. I'll do the shoulder surgery again to know. That at some point in my life, just being who I am was enough to help this young lady find her passion and give her the life that she wanted. And that, man, that means more to me than anything. And, but I, I will take a Grammy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Wow. Joey, thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking this much time out with, with me today. Oh, my I appreciate pleasure, my friend. it. Certainly. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. That was my interview with the wonderful Joey Stuckey. Just incredible. Like always, I will have links in the description below. Be sure to click on those. Go find his website. Go support him. Get some merch. Buy his music. Spread the love. Keep the blues alive, most importantly. And uh, just just live life. Live it smart. Live it well. And don't complain. Because, man, speaking to him, I mean, just was uplifting. Here I am complaining about a lot of things that I, you know, think are horrible in life and I could, you know, it could, it could be way worse. It could be way worse. So just make do with what you have and don't complain. Live life to the fullest and just love people. And that's what Joey's talking to Joey. He's made me understand and even kind of improve a little bit with some of the struggles that I've been going through. It felt like a therapy session, which was great. 
Um, man, that was fun. Like always, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify and iHeartRadio. Be sure to check our website out as well, www.themondaymorningblues. We just had some new bookings. Next week, we'll have Neil Carter from UFO, formerly then with, uh, he was with Gary Moore as well. And then we're going to have Connor Court, a touring audio engineer, um, Aiden Skinner, a Shreveport a young kid. He's got a lot of Kenny Wayne Shepherd and Steve Ray Vaughn in his playing. And then Damon Fowler. Um, a lot of uh, cool stuff happening over here at the show. See you next week. Stay safe. God bless. And thank you for listening, as always. <laughs>